Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. We're doing something in this episode I never thought I'd do, and that is to have a, a political candidate on the podcast, my friend Becky Edwards. Welcome to the podcast, Becky. It's great to be here. Thank you. Tell our listeners what you're running for. I am uh, running for the U.S. Senate, and we're we're deep in the middle of that, and this is a, an election that will happen in the year 2022. So we're about nine months away from the primary. And tell our listeners what state you're running from and who's the incumbent. I am running in the state of Utah. My husband and I live in North Salt Lake. We've raised our family there for the past uh, 20 or 30 years. And I'm running to unseat Mike Lee, the incumbent. And so some would ask, well, you haven't ever done political podcasts before. And I, I just felt like with Becky and her political record and her message and her personal and our family that I reached out to Becky and volunteered to have her on the podcast as a thank you for the way she's blessed our family and our son, Ben, in particular. And I've loved politicians that in Democrats and Republicans that work together across party lines to bring forth solutions. And I sense Becky's that kind of a candidate. So we'll link to her campaign um, as part of the podcast notes. But um, the first part of this podcast, it may be five minutes. I just want to read a little bit about um, Becky's role in her life. And then I want to um, turn it over to Becky to talk a little bit about her campaign. Um, I've written a new book that'll be out in Q1 of 2022. It's called Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. And chapter seven is called Overcoming Scrupulosity. So I'll read a little bit from this book. So bear with us and this, bear with me that phrase, and this will help um, you understand Becky's unique role in our life. Um, I start with, I'd like to introduce this topic, meaning scrupulosity, with a story that's very meaningful to our family about our son, Ben, the youngest of our six children and our fourth missionary. As Sheila and I dropped him off at the M Missionary Training Center in July of 2019, we were confident he, like his older brothers, would have a wonderful and positive experience to help people come into Christ. We felt Ben was prepared. He had the benefit of his older brother's examples, missionary experience, and influence. He had a wonderful ward and stake leaders assisting him in preparation. Further, Ben had a track record of doing hard things. Um, ben, and I won't read all this, gave up football as a little league player. Um, and I will read this. Um, ben actually donated his jersey with the name Osler on the back to the Desert Industries. Two years later, that same jersey was spotted in Western Africa. Ben's uncle and aunt, David and Rochelle Osler, were presiding of the Sierra Leone Freetown Mission, and they saw a young man walking on a back road wearing a football jersey with Osler on the back. They were astonished to see their name on a shirt worn by a young man in Africa. It felt like a tender mercy, a literal sign from heavenly parents were aware of them. This story was shared broadly by local media. When Ben was in high school, he sat in the stands and cheered on the football team, which was short-handed and experiencing difficult seasons. After his junior year, with the encouragement of friends like quarterback Hunter Workman, Ben courageously decided to put back on those hung-up cleats from earlier as he walked onto his high school football team as a senior. Ben played offense, defense, and special teams and worked through injuries in a difficult season. Not one to quit, Ben was committed to his team, coach, and the school to the end. That commitment paid off in the last play of the last game of the season as Ben caught a touchdown pass. 
his only touchdown catch, his quarterback friend Hunter made the call overriding the coach's instructions for design play to Ben. I think coach Bart Bowen, a great friend, mentor, and human being, forgave the boys. Ben was also the field goal kicker and kick successfully kicked the ugliest extra point kick I've ever witnessed. My wife Sheila and I joined Ben and his teammates on the field for the celebration. And later, as Ben earned first-team regional honors as a wide receiver. Ben had many Polynesian friends among his teammates and spent the previous summer doing humanitarian work in Samoa. So our entire family was delighted with his mission assignment to Samoa. He felt deeply connected to the Polynesian people and culture and would be serving a people he already loved. While not perfect, Ben was faithful and righteous and a strong testimony of the church and a love for the Savior and for others. He was leaving his longtime girlfriend summer and headed out for a mission in Samoa. All those experiences gave us peace, confidence that Elder Oster would be a successful missionary. Sheila and I drove home to the mission training center and dropped him off. While we prayed for Ben's success to find people and be protected, it never crossed our mind that his experience would expose his personal struggle with scrupulosity. That all began to change in the MTC. Elder Oster reported having a hard time feeling the spirit and feeling worthy. No serious sins, just a general feeling of unworthiness. We encouraged him, chalked it up to normal homesickness, and believed that everything would be fine once he got to Samoa. However, after that initial excitement of being a Samoa, Elder Osler opened up to us in his emails and video chats. He talked about not feeling a spirit, not feeling worthy, not feeling like he belonged there and in a dark place. As his parents, we were worried. This was a complete surprise. We were pleased that Elder Osler told us his actual feelings were stumped. We realized this was different than normal homesickness. Things continued to go down for Elder Osler. He talked openly about coming home rather than completing his time of service. We were supported that if this was his decision, especially since we were generally concerned about his emotional well-being, our normal, happy, and positive son was in a dark place, which was totally new territory for us. In counseling with our bishop, Jim Campbell, we learned that Elder Osler frequently emailed from Samoa to reconfess Minor sins before his mission, sins that did not even require speaking with the bishop. Then our stake president, David Sturt, got involved as well. Those priesthood leaders reassured him that he was worthy. There were no debilated confession at the root of the situation. But the cycle repeated itself in a way that we had never witnessed. We all realized that something was different was happening we did understand. There were pieces of the puzzle we were not seeing, and our combined life experience did not give us the tools to find what was missing. Sheila and I fasted, attended the temple, and prayed. We are forever grateful to Bishop Campbell, President Sturt, and Ben's mission president, President Sister Ho Ching, for going slowly, not overreacting, and trying to understand the unique situation before deciding the correct next steps. Importantly, along with his leaders, we felt Elder Oster was emotionally stable enough to continue to serve while making decisions about his future. During this time, my wife and I were praying for more personal revelation I had lunch with a friend, Kent Griffiths, a well-respected marriage and family therapist in Salt Lake. Sheila and I had kept the situation confidential, but I felt impressed to make an exception and confide in Kent. After about five minutes of listening, Kent typed something in a search engine on his phone and handed it to me. There was the description of scrupulosity. That definition fit Ben perfectly. We were forever grateful for Kent and his inspired expertise to point us in the path of healing. We were hopeful we had finally found the missing piece of the puzzle. I shared this information with Sheila. She found an Ensign article on scrupulosity by Dr. Deborah McClendon that had been published just one month earlier. 
As we read the article, we learned that this is not a spiritual weakness, but an emotional illness. More specifically, it's an anxiety disorder. While not clinically trained, we felt reasonably confident we had an accurate diagnosis. We shared this information with President Sturt, who worked with President Ho Ching in Samoa, to get our son access to a therapist. We were blessed to learn that Elder John and Sister Becky Edwards, full-time welfare service missionaries, were serving on the same island as Elder Osler. Sister Edwards has a Master's of Social Work degree from BYU and is a marriage and family therapist. Sheila pointed out that Heavenly Father was in the details. Sister Edwards, an experienced therapist with expertise in the area, was in the same island as Elder Osler and was able to meet with him in person. Prayers are often answered through others, and this was certainly the case with the Edwards coming into Elder's life. We will be forever grateful to this couple. We contacted Sister Edwards so she was aware of the tentative diagnosis to help Elder Osler. We then contacted Deborah McClendon and interviewed her on the podcast as a follow-up to her Ensign article. Now, listeners, I'm going to skip just a little bit to the rest of the story, and then I'm going to make sure we give Sister Edwards time to talk about her campaign. That's really the purpose of this podcast. So the end of this chapter is the outcome. With Sister Edwards' help... And family and priesthood leader support and prayers, Elder Osler's emotional health stabilized. He saw hope in his future and understood that he was worthy to be a missionary. He no longer set dates to come home. He reported feeling happiness as a missionary and said to Sheila to call home that if COVID-19 shut down the mission, he hoped he would be the last missionary standing. We, will un- we, we with the undeniable guidance of the Lord, found the missing and correct peace and the correct people were put into place to give Elder Oster the tools to be emotionally stable and understand he was actually worthy to serve a mission. In March of 2020, because of COVID-19, all foreign missionaries, except the Edwards, and maybe Sister Edwards will talk about that, were evacuated on a charter flight out of America, Samoa. Elder Osler's girlfriend, Summer, also came home from Australia because of COVID. Once home, Ben chose... Um, let me. After a few months home, Ben and Summer felt their path was not to return to their respective missions but get married. They were sealed in the Jordan River Temple in August 2022, 19-year-old return missionaries starting their lives together. It was a wonderful day. And then I go on to once again thank Sister Edwards. So that's 10 minutes of a chapter in the book of just, you know, prayers are often answered through other people. We are meeting Becky Edwards for the first time in her home. My wife and I just gave her this big hug with tears in her eyes. Part of her campaign staff is here, and we would want to do anything we can to support Becky and John for what they've done. John, Ben has this nagging football injury, and so there's your husband helping him on his nagging football injury. And one of our friends, Mike Metcalf, that you would know, said, well, your John is one of the top orthopedic surgeons in all of Utah you know, performing knee replacement surgeries in Samoa that on the side is helping our son with his nagging football injuries. So anyway, we're just, Sheila and I are just so grateful for you, Becky, and um, taking this time out of politics to be in Samoa and now stepping back into the political world. And with that, I'll just kind of turn it over to you. What, anything you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, thank you so much for the invitation to be here today. And my first introduction to your podcast was through your interview um, that you had with um, Deborah McClelland about scrupulosity. When I was working with your son, who to me will always be Elder Osler, I love him. He's a such a great young man, and uh, hearing this this story again in 
as you're reading it right now, uh, does bring back so many memories of um, of that our time together on the island of Tutuila in American Samoa. And uh, when I first uh, started working with Elder Osler, it became so clear that um, the Lord is in the details of, of all of our lives. And in this particular instance, it was a tremendous privilege to sort of be be part of that. And I have um, reflect on on sitting outside. They when I first uh, was working with him, they were living in a small, like I think they'd converted a room of one of the churches there in uh, the furthest east side of the village. I mean, of the island. And we lived sort of in the middle of the island, and we'd drive out there, and and uh, we sat outside. And the ocean was maybe 50 feet away and chickens and there were stray dogs that the missionaries sort of had adopted and went from one set of missionaries to the next and the next. And and these were wandering around as we were trying to have a, a connection and build a relationship built on, on love, his love of the people, his love of the work, his love of um, what he what he really knew he could and wanted to contribute in that role as a missionary. And it was a wonderful experience to witness that and witness that the growth and the development that uh, made it possible for him to make the decision to stay on his mission and move to a, a different area on the same island eventually and flourish like none other. When when the missionaries, as you mentioned, were evacuated out in March because of COVID, my husband and I stood in the airport. And of course, it's one of those airports with, with um, no, no walls as you look outside of the waiting area and you can see the plane is there and, and people are walking and you see them and just tears were running down our eyes. And we're thinking, we are so alone. Now, here on this island, there was another senior couple that were both working also at the hospital with my husband, and uh, we we missed those young elders and sisters, and uh, so did the island, actually. People we'd see, members and non-members alike, were, were very mournful at the loss of their, their spirit and their um, real desire to serve and be connected with the people. So, it was was awfully sad when they left <laughs> and uh could you have gotten on that flight and if it and did you know if you didn't get on that flight when you'd be able to leave we did have the we did have the option to get on that flight and i think we we did not feel like it was the the time for us to leave uh, my husband was doing some training of the orthopedic surgeons there that uh, LBJ Tropical Medical Center there in Pongo Pongo, American Samoa, and uh, teaching them the technique of how to do joint replacement. So they did um, not have that as part of their training in medical school. I think the three physicians there had all been trained in Fiji and they were good surgeons and smart and clever doing amazing things with hardly any resources and, and equipment. And so they were ready and primed to learn this new this new technique. And through about a hundred miracles, they were able to bring in uh, equipment from the medical rep company Zimmer Biomet that my husband had worked with 
doing 3,000 knee replacements through his career. And those same same folks that he'd built this relationship with all those years um, came to American Samoa, brought $1.9 million worth of equipment on an island that this would have been completely unheard of. And they were still learning the process. And for him to have left at that point would have been to have not completed what the the goal was, which was to teach them how to do this this surgery, which ended up being the arthritis, knee arthritis was an endemic on the island. And so they they got to the point where their confidence and their capacity grew. And really when when we left, uh, they they continued the program and it was sort of with the perfect model of what self-reliance in the church is. So it was very gratifying to see that. Um, this flight took off in March. When did you actually leave Samoa? And it was it longer than your original assignment? It, yeah, it did. We were supposed to uh, be home the middle of November. And then the island was still locked down. They'd had, I think, one flight where they took Medicaid patients off who couldn't get treatment on the island. And they took them to Hawaii for treatment there. Uh, but again, that was not something that was in in the cards for us. So we stayed. And then the next flight waited and waited and uh, was supposed to be in November. And eventually the church called and said, uh, you guys are still on your mission, right? And we're like, yeah, we're still here. Because for you kind of feel a little isolated there in the in that part of the world. And we said, yeah, we're still here. And they said, and there's no way to get you off, right? I said, that's right. And they said, well, if you you hear of something or a way to get you home, you call us and let us know. <laughs> so uh, the middle of January, there was another Medicaid flight and they needed a physician on that flight who could kind of watch these patients who were in many cases kind of in precarious uh, medical circumstances. So they asked John to be the doctor on that flight and we we did come home so it was two months we call those our bonus months and honestly it was it was wonderful it was a wonderful experience to serve there and and while John was doing that my role was as the uh, mental health advisor for, for the whole Pacific for the island missions in the Pacific so these are the missionaries in uh, Papua New Guinea Marshall Islands Kiribati Fiji, Tahiti, Samoa, Tonga. Um, I think I'm leaving someone out. Did I? I can't remember. Anyway, oh, Vanuatu. How could I leave out Vanuatu? Anyway, the island, the island missions. And and at first, when I thought, how am I going to actually be able to counsel with these missionaries? Because, um, of course, this is intended to be sort of short-term, what they call pastoral counseling. This is not long-term, you know, therapeutic treatment. But, of course, we're all used to Zoom here in the States. And and I'm thinking, how will this be effective? Can I make a human connection with someone just over the phone? And, I again, the the Lord... If there's one thing I learned from our mission, it's that the Lord loves his missionaries. And those those calls with when I'm I'm on my phone, no, most of these missionaries did not have 
uh, like fancy phones. So it was just, you know, the crackly connection and with chickens in the background and and you could hear hear the sounds that made me think, all right, I can tell you are really in the Marshall Islands. I can hear the chickens. The chickens are endemic all around the Pacific Islands. Anyway, that was a that was um, hundreds of missionaries and in eight different missions and a wonderful opportunity to work with and and support in many cases missionaries who elders and sisters alike who were experiencing some real challenges and sometimes they were you know things just adjustments kind of front end of the mission adjustments to mission life or culture or language and and that kind of thing or it was uh situations related to anxiety or depression and that's probably the bulk of 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 the situations and uh in addition to the ones that i actually got a referral from the mission president to work with uh, i knew that there were hundreds many many more who were also um you know experiencing uh emotional distress, hardship, challenges that were were not reaching out. And so we we uh, the other sister missionary who was the mental health advisor in Australia and New Zealand, we created some materials that uh, we shared with mission presidents and and encouraged as much as you can. Uh, why don't you use this as part of your zone conferences, this small little video, this small material, and the church actually has some really great materials. Uh, the program that they they use for all missionaries adjusting to missionary life. It's a great program. And I actually feel like they should just take that adjusting to missionary life out and just call it adjusting to life. It's a great resource for for people in general, and it's based on on good material. And then, of course, has the sort of gospel overlay. But a lot of it is is based on um, caring um, and using uh, practices that I think would benefit all of us in in our lives. Caring for yourself, caring for others, being patient in the process, uh, acknowledging that life is challenging. And how to sort of work through work through those challenges. So we had good good resources and amazing missionaries that I I love today. Well, on behalf of all the parents, um, like my wife and I, you've blessed. There's probably hundreds that feel the same way. We're just so grateful for your service, especially during COVID, with the increased need for people with your clinical expertise and the work you did and the lives that were better. I with scrupulosity, I wish I'd learned. I wish as part of mission training that um, some of this was sort of brought to the attention of leaders and mission, because I think we could have seen some of the signs earlier. And um, so that's one of the reasons that we included scrupulosity in the book and just to bring more attention to it so that maybe some people as part of mission prep, there'd just be more work than some of the resources you're talking about. I hope our listeners picked up, you didn't even mention it, that you missed that Christmas with your family. Um, I would guess that being gone for one Christmas already on an 18th month mission, that the Christmas of 2020 was something perhaps you look forward to. You've got kids and grandkids and um, you missed that Christmas and you still, the Christmas of 2021 will be extra sweet for you. Um, Listeners, when I became a Becky Edwards name, um, 
I put it into a Google search engine and it didn't take me very long to recognize what you've done in our community um, from your 10 years as a state representative um, on the Hill, representing a district north of here, North Salt Lake, I believe. And um, I'd love you just to tell your story of how you, you know, just wherever you want to go. I want people to really understand your campaign. I don't want a listener to sign off and not understand your campaign and why you decided to go back, if this is always a plan to always run for a U.S. Senate or just, and why you're doing this and what's the message from your campaign. So at this point, I'll just kind of turn it over to you, Becky. Awesome. Well, so I, as you said, I've served in the Utah House for 10 years from 2009 to 2018. And I got into that race um, initially because I I felt disgruntled about some things that I'd seen our state legislature do around education and some other things and had done a fair amount of complaining as as sometimes we do. And my own children brought to me something that I had said to them many times before. Instead of just complaining, maybe you should get involved and do something about it, make a difference. And I thought, you're actually right. Whoever told you that is a genius. I should, and I will. And so that was in February of 2008. By one month later, in March of 20, 2008, I had filed to run in the um, Utah House and was uh, very fortunate to win that first election because I was running against an incumbent. And that's that's kind of a difficult thing in Utah. Uh, so this is on the Republican side. We had a primary on the on the Republican ticket there in, in Davis County where we had raised our four children and now we have 10 grandchildren um, and, and proceeded to serve for 10 years. And some of the, my, one thing that I had always said was at, um, if I was so fortunate enough to be elected for 10 years, that at that point I would step down because I'm a believer in term limits and it's not part of our law in Utah. You're not required. We don't have term limits, but it was important enough to me to do it regardless. And I knew it was important. And so I stepped down and my husband and I, uh, five months later, were on a plane to American Samoa, where we had always planned on serving a mission and he just took a sabbatical from work. And now he's back at work as an orthopedic surgeon. But uh, during my time that I served, uh, some of the most cherished experiences I had were hearing people's stories um, and figuring out how to solve problems that people were experiencing. And even though I'd lived in this uh, community for decades, there were people and stories and places and streets that I had never been on, that I had never experienced. And so knowing right away that this would be one of the like secret weapons of my service, um, we started right off the bat that first year in having um, people come into our home, sit in our living room every Saturday during the legislative session. And we called it bagels and briefings. We'd have bagels. And at first I thought, oh, I'll, I'll dazzle everyone with these great PowerPoints I'm seeing at the Capitol and on public education funding. And I'd throw that up the first week and we're going through these slides and I could see immediately no snoozerama. No one was there for that. They were there to tell their story. So week two, people came in the living room again, and we just listened. And over time, I heard a lot of 
sweet stories, some complaints, some things of like this bill isn't going where it should, or you need to do this. I learned so much from, from these individuals who became dear friends and experts that I called on actually during different pieces of legislation. And it was a great opportunity for me to learn and, and be a better elected um, service because I had had these people as, as in my back pocket. Um, I remember a couple of issues specifically. We had a, a group of women who came one day uh, with a serious concern about how they were being treated by the owner of their mobile home park. And this was an issue I had not had experience with. I didn't know the details of this and all the ins and outs of the legalities of things, but I knew someone who would. So we connected together with the attorney at the Capitol and we sat down together and reasoned how we could solve this problem and help them be in a more fair, just situation. And we were able to do that. Another year uh, was the year that the trans community was uh, advocating for the sex designator on state documents to be to be changed. And that was a week that uh, we had people from the trans community in my living room who some of whom I had I had never met and sharing their stories was so powerful and so poignant and helped me understand their life experience in a way that I would never have been able to do had I just read read about it if I had even watched someone it's different person to person sitting shoulder to shoulder on your on your couch in your living room and so when I decided to run for the U.S. Senate, this was one of the things I was most concerned about. I'm like, how will I be able to be as understanding and responsive uh, without this opportunity like we've been doing all for 10 years? Because we had we did this every Saturday during the session for 10 years. So wow. it's hundreds of people in, wow. and, in and out of, of our home. And then I thought, okay. Cannot have everyone in the living room. However, as a symbol of this desire and intentionality around listening and gathering people's stories and then acting on them, uh, we're going to take a piece of, of our home around the state. So we have a yellow couch actually from our home, and it happens to fit in the back of our Volkswagen Atlas. So we're taking this yellow couch around the state and plopping it, you know, in front of ice cream parlors on Main Street in different towns or in a park or a community center and just talking, listening, learning, and then taking that really important next step of actually looking at how to act upon that knowledge. And that has been every bit as gratifying as you as you would imagine. Um, and the generosity of people to share their stories is is amazing. I love that. I, I've seen the yellow couch on social media, but I haven't learned the backstory that that's actually the couch from your home. That ten legislative sessions you had people in just to listen to their stories. And I love the idea that they didn't really want a PowerPoint. They just want someone to listen to them. And I've learned in my own life, listening to people outside of my normal circle really helps me and helps me to better help them, especially if I'm at a point of privilege and can lift and yeah. help like you did with the people in that mobile home park that needed your help as their representative to understand their situation. 
talk more about your campaign if you want to and just what, you know, I'm kind of a marketer, so I would naturally think, you know, if you're in a Republican field, you would draw some distinctions between you and other Republicans as that's the first phase of your campaign. Do you want to talk at all about that? Or another question is, if I talked to you back in Samoa in a private moment, would you have said, when we get back, I'm going to run for U.S. Senate? Or did that come before or after? You could talk about just this really big decision to, you know, it sounds like you always want to be back in politics, but you could talk about just why this race in particular. You know, like, like most Utahns, and Americans, I had been watching the divisive nature of politics increase over the years and seeing how uh, destructive that is to our democracy and then also how ineffective it is for creating change and moving things forward in a positive way. So I'd seen that somewhat when we were, when I was still serving in the Utah House and um, seeing how it can be different. Like, I'll just share an example of um, two bills that on big things that were divisive in 2010, the Utah Compact on Immigration. An example of when we did things, quote, the Utah way. Love that. And came together and actually reasoned in a way that we had not seen. We didn't copy this from another red state. We didn't think, oh, this is a recipe we'll just put together. We did old school, sit down at the table, bring in a bipartisan way and make sure that every voice was heard. That was an example of some really effective movement on an issue that ended up being uh, very important in our state. Um, Another example of that was in 2015, anti-discrimination legislation that I think if if we had heard that bill in 2014 or 13, it could have had a different outcome. But the everything was just sort of perfectly aligned in 2015. And all parts of the conversation, people were willing to come together with sort of a generosity of spirit and a willingness to listen and learn. And, and again, created with with advocates, stakeholders, people who were in those the LGBTQ plus community, faith communities, uh, people who had concerns on all the whole spectrum of related to that issue coming together and and the sort of celebration that it felt like when that bill passed that, okay, we we can do this. And I wanted to see um, even more of that. And in my legislative experience, that's sort of what I had worked on the whole time was things in a bipartisan way and issues that were sometimes thought to be, oh, Republicans don't touch this. Republicans don't talk about air quality or climate or affordable housing. Those those aren't issues that that we talk about. But actually, those issues don't have a partisan bent. Their clean air affects everybody in the state. And affordable housing matters to rural communities, urban communities. It's, it's across the whole state. So I found for me, my most effective uh, times as a legislator were the times when I did that very same model of bringing people together and working in a bipartisan way. And so this was why it was really distressing when I started to see this even escalate more, the divisiveness, the hyper-partisanship 
in, um, and maybe part of it was coming from an outsider lens a little bit, being removed from the politics of it and watching from afar and thinking, wow, they're just Utah. We, we can do so much better. We can do so much better. And this, this uh, type of representation in our federal delegation is, is not productive. And so when, when I, when we got home, as I said, the middle of January, um, I started to reflect on that more because while you're on your mission, you're pretty engaged in that and wearing your missionary hat. But then when we got home, I thought, you know, this is, this is actually a real travesty for our state and we need to see a change. And I started to list off all the things that I wanted to see in someone who would be a, a better representative, a better type of leadership. And it did include things like uh, intentionality around being inclusive, uh, being someone who listened to all sides, uh, worked in a bipartisan way and across the spectrum within the Republican Party as well. And the more I thought about the issues and the the need for a different type of uh, conversation, it it actually just hit me. I thought, actually, that's that's me. <laughs> that's what I did when I served before. And so I thought, I'm going to live with this for like a week. I'm going to see how this feels. I'm going to act as though I am running and see if this seems like the a good thing for me. So told my husband, he was all in. And the very next day, I said, John, I don't need a week. I'm in. This is too important. And I think that I can take the very same things that I worked on in the Utah House and have that same approach in the U.S. Senate. It's so needed. We we really do need and deserve. And these are the same kinds of um, feelings and and. Uh, aspirations that I'm hearing from people as we're going around the state for a better leadership, for better politics and and better solutions that can make people recognize uh, the type of things that we we see on our on our federal delegation. That's a great story. I've always wanted to hear that story of just I've wondered if when you went to Samoa you knew you were going to do this, but it sounds like this came later. Yeah, in a very short period of time, and then you be very resolute that this is what you're going to do. And as I've talked to your husband, you guys are both all in, and I've been all in from the beginning. And um, I, you know, I just think it's really, I think it's you know, I'm careful, listeners, because I'm not trying to endorse political candidates on this, but I recognize you know just the need for civil discourse, and I love um, when we can come together and solve things. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to, I read, I did a Facebook post in right before the last election on October 25th, 2020, and I wrote down my voting history listeners. Ever since I could vote in 1980, I voted for John Anderson, an independent. And here's what I wrote is, listener, I wrote, I voted for five Democrats and five Republicans and one independent. And then I wrote, please make space for Latter-day Saints, they can feel for." Vote for candidates of any political party. No one should feel they are more or less faithful based on how they vote. And I've wanted to create space in our faith for, um, and that's why I may reference Elder Oaks's talk, just creating space for people to vote for any political party, 
um, as Latter-day Saints and not, and some people always vote Republican, some people always vote Democrat, some like me kind of vote a little bit based on the canon and the issue that's important to me. But I really love, I think that's one of the reasons I've been in the center of my voting history is I've really drawn to candidates that I've perceived are not sort of flamethrowers. I've recognized you can get a big political following by being a flamethrower on the other side and create a lot of fear and anxiety. And I've always liked ones that could just, you know, develop a campaign based on the strength of their campaign and the issues they stand for and have a fact-based discussion a fact-based discussion with the other side without sort of villainizing it or flame-throwing it. And that's why I love the Utah Compact, the Utah Compact and the other legislation with the non-discrimination, because to me, that's that's the kind of political work that I think is so needed um, on a national level. Any thoughts on any of that? I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I think there's a, there is a, a real desire for people to see more of that. In in my own life, I've had some really great examples of doing uh, work around uh, bringing communities together. My, I don't have to go back very far to see these examples, but my grandmother grew up in Owyhee, Nevada on a Shoshone Indian reservation. And these were, these were her friends, uh, they worshipped together. They went to school together. These they lived together. These were her her. This was her community, and later married my grandfather and came into the LDS faith later in life. Um, but she, it, it was always a very a natural part of her her life and her history to have had this very expansive view of of humanity and that it was more than uh, the life that she was creating for her family in Ogden first and then in Salt Lake where my my dad was born and, and grew up and um, the way she she approached people who were different experiences that were different was a great example for me and I think for for my father who ended up uh, when he was a graduate student at University of Minnesota, and my dad for 30 years was a BYU professor of child development, Al Price, CDFR 210, uh, was a really, was sort of a rite of passage at BYU during the the years that he was there, late 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and 90s. And um, But when he was a graduate student, he and a, a small team were tasked by President Johnson to create curriculum and start the first Head Start program. And so here he, here he was with a group of, I think there were 10 of them. They wrote curriculum because his, his doctorate was in early childhood development. And they rode on the buses down to Mississippi with half the bus were people registering individuals to vote. And the other half was folks uh, with Head Start helping register kids and train teachers and find locations for for um, the Head Start programs to to run this. These were experiences and stories and people that that informed my dad's life experience again as someone who grew up in Ogden and Salt Lake he he did not know those those stories and he did not experience the same things that these young parents in Mississippi and other places in the south that he was there trying to um, empower 
to help their children uh, get the education so they could have some more equal opportunities as they as they encountered their their lives that became just sort of part of the things we talked about at the dinner table and that approach to to life and so then when um my husband and I served a mission. Actually, before we went to Samoa, we had served a mission in the Oxbow County Jail in That's Salt cool. Lake, like with the Salt Lake Inner City Project. That's so cool. And so this was the programs division. These were individuals. It was a, a male unit, and these were individuals who were incarcerated because of crimes related to some sort of um, drug or alcohol infraction. And so, again... This was not in my life experience, but we did not take us very long before we began to love those brothers. The, we met it on Sunday morning every week for church and uh, met behind the glass and counseled with them and talked to them what were their plans when they got out and how we could help them find a place to live, a place uh, to go to church, and and also find a job. and. I just want to share some real positive experience that that came of that. These were were folks who had had some really hard times, clearly with with addiction and criminal history, et cetera. But when we walked in, my husband and I walked into um, sacrament meeting with with these individuals, and we did this dozens and dozens and dozens of time times over two years. Uh, Every single time there were people in that ward, there were people in the in the bishoprics who came and opened their arms and said, you know, welcome. And I'll never forget this, this, this one bishop who was, uh, I think, I forget, the single adult ward. So it was in, I think they met like in Parley's uh, way kind of area, but they're their ward actually, oh no, they met on like that old granite building, I think on 21st South. Anyway, they had like 800 people in this ward. And so this bishop was was probably pretty maxed out. And we're sitting there with with our with our brother from Oxbow, who's just been out of out of jail for two days. And we're sitting there, he's talking to the bishop, and this this brother starts to, you know, share his history. And the bishop just puts up his hands. He says, Hold on. Just pause, just pause. There will be plenty of time for that later. Just come worship with us. And that phrase, just come worship with us, has stuck with me through through the years since that time. And I think of the, the wonderful message that that is, is you don't need to bring your baggage. You don't need to bring your, your worries. Just come sit on the pew with us. And let's worship Christ together. I, I loved that. And that was something that happened over and over again. And to see the grace of uh, Christ's example in, in those brothers was really powerful. And again, informed me. So at the very same time, my husband and I are serving in the jail. I'm also serving in the legislature. And we're in the middle of having these discussions about uh, justice reform. and. You know, we're in these conversations and a lot of like stereotypes and and 
criminals are X and they're, they could only do these certain things. They could pull themselves up by the bootstraps and everything would be better. Finally, one day I just stood up and said, guys, you're missing the point. I'm in the jail every Sunday, every single week I'm there, every single week. My husband and I are picking people up as they walk down the ramp off that jail in 33rd South. And if they went into jail in the middle of the summer, they're walking out in the flip-flops and shorts in January. Just whatever they walked in, they walk out with. And we're trying to help them find a job and a place to stay. I'm like, it is not as easy as you think. Even when you have resources and a nice older couple missionaries who are trying to help you navigate this, just put it on pause and understand these circumstances, understand the real life situations. And I've seen that over and over in the uh, LGBTQ plus community is as you're so deeply involved there and other other people, uh, BIPOC community, people whose stories are incredibly important. But if they don't fall within our personal narrative, we sometimes do not intentionally seek those out. And we when we do, when we do that, though, the decisions we make, the conversations we have, the policies we create are better. They're better for it. And that intentionality around being inclusive is so important. It's so needed, I think, at every level of our government, but especially in our in our um, federal delegation with some, I will say, there is room for improvement. I'll sound like a kindergarten teacher now. <laughs> room for improvement, but there is room for improvement. And I know I know there's a better way because I I did it. And and the people of Utah deserve to be included and heard and have have uh, their stories matter and um be be part of of uh, someone who is going to be proactive and inclusive and productive on their behalf in the U.S. Senate. That was a powerful segment, Becky. Really resonated with me and I think with our listeners and um, very much brings us together as the same human family. I think of Brene Brown's quote, people are hard to hate, close up, move in. And there's something about the practicality of you being in the jail, you and John, and the humanization that that creates when you hear people's stories and know that it's not that simple and they can't just pick themselves up their bootstraps. And and we can come together as a society through legislation and through other resources to help those that have a harder road. And that it and I love your track record of doing this. This isn't theoretical with you. This is real life 10 years of doing it. That's one of the strengths of your candidacy as I'm just and your life story, um, your clinical expertise, your master's in marriage and family therapy, and your role at the legislature, your service in many circles that just give you this perspective. Um, I love uh, this quote kind of resonates with me. When I was a YSA bishop, um, a lot of the YSAs were just, they had so much anxiety and fear. And I listened to them listening to the respective news channels, whether side of the political are they're on. And I finally started telling them, Stop listening to the news because I recognize some of that news is so, I want people to be informed, but I recognize, you know, but I don't want to call out any certain channel, but if you're just listening to news that just creates a feeling of how bad the other side is, it creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. 
And I think it's one of the great ways to divide us. I love this quote from Brene Brown that you don't need to hear um, Becky because you already understand it. You're not doing it. But common enemy intimacy is the opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share is simply we hate the same people, the intimacy we experience is intense, immediately immediately gratifying, and an easy way to discharge our outrage and pain. It's not, however, fuel for real connection. So I recognize that we sometimes come together as a political party or different circles, and it's and our connection is kind of taking on the other side. And I like kind of a higher, holier law where we can still come together in political parties or religions or different circles. We can just come together on the facts of that party and the platform of that party and have a fact-based discussion without the without demonizer taking on the other side in a fearful way. I've worried about the increased anxiety and stress and fear that Paul, the, the divisiveness of politics have brought. And so I'm drawn to candidates naturally that are, well, I call it a higher, holier way. You're not selling out any of your political values. You're not somehow waffling by, you're, you're not. You're, you're just taking yeah. what, you're taking the strength of your political platform and putting it in a practical application to bring forth ways that bring us together and solve real problems. So it's not an easy road. I guess any road as a politician is not easy, but I really respect. So I'd lo- if you want to, any thoughts on that, but I'd love you to call listeners. When I, Becky started running, I'm on social media. I'm old for social media. That's another story. But suddenly all my LGBTQ friends are like, love your campaign. I'm on Twitter and they're retweeting your campaign. And um, all the moms with gay kids are just big fans of you. And there's this whole, and I'm recognizing, wait a second, I don't know Becky has any connection with the LGBT community, but there's this, there's these multiple communities that are deeply connected to your campaign. So you kind of touched on LGBTQ, but any just backstory of how, you're comfortable in this space and sort of bringing that group of people together? You know, I think it was uh, certainly something that just happened quite naturally, which is is sort of how it should be. It should be uh, completely natural and normal to to look around and realize that on your on your campaign, as I did, um, once we sort of got organized and we were working on things, to recognize one day, wow, actually, we have a lot of individuals working on our campaign who are in the LGBTQ plus community. And isn't that awesome? And and it's awesome because they're experts in their own sphere of of um you know their their roles here in the in the campaign. So it's really great to have them working on on the different issues and bringing their their skill set as as it should be in in all situations that it just is a very natural thing uh but as that you know knowing that there are um communities who do feel unheard and ignored and uh marginalized and LGBTQ plus certainly being one of those, we've had some intentional conversations around around this with with members of our team and and brought actually people on specifically to uh, make sure that we're that our our messages reflect the intentions 
And so I continue to learn as well. But for me, it was always just based in in love, in a natural extension of outreach that was uh, beautiful. And I think uh, a sort of how how it should be this this should be something that as a community we we reach out and we understand and we hear again stories um that help educate inform our our view and and then our actions follow from those so it's it's actually been one of the real privileges of the campaign um but it was never any type of a quota or a you know affirmative action or anything like that it just so happened to be that we got a lot of people who are really good at what they do and just happened and it seems consistent with the earlier message when you took on some of those political issues that they weren't a republican issue or a democrat issue there's the human issue and i think lgbtq perhaps some people unaided would put that more in the democrat platform but I just recognize what you're helping us understand. That's a human issue. And it can be, you know, in the work your work that Utah did in the non-discrimination. I, I kind of think sometimes of Apollo 13, if I've got this right. My wife's really good at movie um, lines, but Houston, we have a problem. And then that that leader of the NASA team, I think this will be our finest moment. Uh, talking about the re-entry and NASA's finest moment in one of their most difficult places. And I think... I think this can be our finest moment politically um, if we come together. You have a track record of doing that, and I think your campaign wants to do that. So I have hope that candidates can step forward and can be our finest moments as Americans and Utahns to work together for common goals and and reduce the political divisiveness. I think our for those of you that are LDS, I think our senior leaders of our church are worried about this within our church is the divisiveness and the divide and within our church and I religion just can't be an extension of our political parties. It's got to be, um, but our political parties can lead by reducing the divisiveness in this last segment. I just love you to, um, tell people how they can support your campaign. Um, your sort of call to action or invite of what people can do to help the Becky Edwards campaign for us Senate and, or anything else you'd like to share with our listeners. Well, I I do want to just empower empower the listeners that their their voice matters and voting is the the number one thing that people can do and I think this has been one of the real destructive parts of what we've seen of late is that um especially young people feel so disengaged and and disgusted in many ways with the rhetoric and the the type of thing we're seeing on a national stage and they're feeling discouraged and thinking there's this is this if this is what it is if this is what politics looks like I want no part of this you know we're talking about the negativity and the the vitriol and what I what I'm hearing from from the young people and we are we do have a, a really healthy robust following on social media and i'm grateful for it and what i'm hearing people say over and over is oh this is awesome we have a chance maybe things can be different let's hope for that better day and that that kindling of enthusiasm for a, 
a shared vision of how things can be is so important right now. And we're seeing that in engagement in social media. We're seeing it with people going to the website, which is beckyforutah.com and, you know, signing up to be a volunteer. We have well over 300 volunteers who have signed up. They're delivering signs. They're helping with different policy pieces on different parts of our campaign. And to a great extent, these are young people who are sort of getting engaged in politics for the first time. And that's incredibly exciting. That's fun to see uh, folks kind of see a vision of their voice mattering and that they can be Im- involved in something that they can feel proud of. I had one one young woman who was um, grew up in Salt Lake and now lives uh, somewhere else. And she she talked to me one day and she said, I'm em- I'm embarrassed to be from Utah now. I always loved telling people I was from Salt Lake and and I'd talk to them about all the great things about being from Utah. And of late, I've stopped telling people I'm from Utah because if I do, they automatically talk to me about our our sitting senator and they'll say, what about this crazy thing this person said or this thing or this thing? And she said, I just want to be proud of Utah again. I just want to be proud of Utah again. So for those out there who want, who feel similarly and want to be engaged, come on board. We would love to have you join us. We have a a shared vision that I think for a brighter, um, brighter days can be ahead and it will take all of us. So here are the ways you can get involved. If you go to the website, Becky for Utah, Uh, There's a page on volunteering and it's, you know, there's six or seven or eight different ways and everything from old school contributions to lawn signs to policy to data to any way that you could think of that you large or small that you would like to engage with our campaign. We would love it. We will put you to work and we would welcome you with open arms, especially as you tell your your story and bring your varied experience to this really robust sort of kaleidoscope of experiences and, and vision that we have here. We're shared vision. Experiences are the kaleidoscope and a shared vision moving forward. And um, we're on all the social media at Becky for Utah. And so I would I would say that besides those, one last thing would be to realize that your vote in the primary of June of 2022 is where that really matters. And so the only people, and this is something this is sort of in the weeds understanding, but it's important for folks to know that only people who are registered to vote, first of all, obviously, and then those who are affiliated as a Republican. Those are the only people who will be eligible to vote in that Republican primary in June. So for those who may be new to registering, so these are young people, maybe this is the first time they're registering. When you register to vote, make sure that you register and you affiliate as a Republican because you'll want your voice to be heard as many times as possible. So voting in the general election matters a lot, but voting in the primary, the Republican primary, which is where I'll be in June, that matters most. 
because in a in a very heavily Republican state, that that's where the election uh, to a great extent is decided. So we will need your registration as a Republican before that even, because we will be gathering signatures to be placed on that primary ballot. And those signatures will be started to be gathered in January. That's another way for people to get involved. Do you like the cold? Do you like to gather signatures? We can put you to work in January. But you will, in order to have your your signature um, authorized, you'll need to be registered as a Republican. So we are telling people that the best Christmas present you can give yourself this year is to make sure you're registered to vote and make sure you're affiliated as a Republican by the 1st of December. So when all this starts to play out in a really serious way in January with signing the signature packet so I can be placed on the ballot and then you're in a position to actually vote in June, you're already ready and you can be a great support to us by doing by doing those things. That, I'm glad you explained that and the importance of the June 2022 primary. Will you talk to current registered Democrat voters that are considering changing to Republican voters so they can vote you in the primary? Is the process the same for them as a new registration? Yeah, and it's the you're already registered to vote, so it's simply uh, becoming just affiliating as a Republican. And I know many people have. Uh, disengaged with the Republican Party of late because of some of the very things that we've been talking about. So for those who have either never been a Republican, not yet, or those who were and have left, we want you to come back. We're going to, it's going to take all of our voices sort of unifying together for this better, brighter future that that, um, I know is possible. And with a U.S. Senator who is, um, able to be that productive, proactive, and and inclusive kind of representative for the state. Well, on behalf of all of our listeners, some that are in Utah and some that aren't, I think the things you've helped everybody in Utah understand your campaign, what you stand for that brings us together. I think the principles you share apply to listeners wherever they're listening, Becky, about how to bring us together and find common ground without selling out the things that are important to us. Sometimes we create these binary narratives, but I think what you've been able to do in the legislature and with your life story and and the role, we haven't gotten too much, but I love you mentioning your father um, and your grandfather, I think, and I think your father recently passed away. And I think as I learn more about you and John and the legacy of your parents and the things that they taught of inclusiveness, it's the same things my wife and I have tried to do in our home and um, but now your ability to then take that out in a campaign and to go for U.S. Senate, you know, we just wish you the best. And my wife, I'm just honored to have you in our home and your campaign team that's here with you. And um, just one last time, just tell our listeners where to go for your website. It's BeckyForUtah.com. And yeah, we'd love, we'd love to have more folks join us. This is an important, a very important sort of pivot point for, for the country and the U.S. Senate with only 100 members in the U.S. Senate. Uh, one voice matters a great deal. And so this has an opportunity to change uh, civic dialogue in a really, a really important way. And I want to just share one one last thing, you know, as we're we're coming 
to the close here, I and you, I mentioned my father and and grandmother and and the experiences John and I have had, but I wanted I want to close with with John's dad, who was the longtime BYU football coach Lavelle Edwards, and he uh, was one of the very first, if not the first, coach to really go to recruit what he called his island boys. And he loved, he loved the the boys from the islands. He loved his Tongan players, his Samoan players. And he used to actually, back in the day, actually recruit on island. And one of the one of the first times that um we went to like a steak event or something, it was a cleanup at a park. And John and I were there with a bunch of other people cleaning up the park. Um, and this man came up to John my husband, and he said, uh, I'd heard you were on the island, but I hadn't met you yet. I wanted to come say hi. And John turned around and, he, and the man said, uh, my name is Kalili Hunt. And when he said that, John's eyes got teary and a few, there was some moisture falling from his eyes. Because when when John's dad had his first uh, football game in 1972, as the first football game where he was the head coach against Kansas State, Kalili Hunt, and my husband was 14 at the time, Kalili Hunt was the starting middle linebacker and was a man who was recruited by Lavelle, came to BYU with his family and his mother saying prayers and crossing fingers and everything that they're sending their boy off island and hoping for the very best that this would be a positive experience for him. He graduated, uh, had a great career at BYU, went back to the islands, is and has a, a book actually that Lavelle wrote um, many years ago and signed on the inside. Is It's such beautiful um, sentiment signed by Lavelle to Kalili on the inside of this cover was um, the the belief that Lavelle had in Kalili and his knowledge that Kalili would go on to be a very important person in the islands and that he could have this great impact in his village for his family and for everything that he knew mattered most to Kalili. And he had saved, clearly had saved this as this treasure all these years and showed it to us later. But that, that is just another example of the connection that can be made with, with people who are um, having an opportunity that did not previously exist for these young, these young boys to come to the mainland and play football, a game that they have been tremendously blessed with, and then in many cases, go back to the island and bless those communities, their villages, their families, was a, a another just another example of reaching out to, to communities and people that are um, different and really opening doors of opportunity. And that example is true in in the football community in 1972, but it's true for us in so many ways, in so many realms of our lives. And I just want to add that good things have happened to me in in church service, but also politically when I have done that. And uh, we look forward to the opportunity to do that in this new, this new environment as well. Thank you for having me. 
today. Oh, Becky, we're so glad you know to have you in our home. I love the tribute to Lavelle and what he's done for the Polynesian people. My wife, who has been the PTA president of our local high school, we have a local high school in Salt Lake City that's less than half Caucasian. It's very unusual, and and my wife has felt really strongly that our kids should stay in that school. It's test score. I mean, it's just a di- it's a different school than a tip, but it's given our kids a world perspective. I think is very very helpful, and for our son to be connected with the Polynesian people back to the beginning, all his poly friends. That's the theme of this whole podcast: is our common love for the Polynesian people. Um, but it was really. I think it's part of just life is move in and hear people's stories and we can come together as the same human family when we just see, instead of our differences, see everybody as the same human family and enjoy those differences to help us come together. So you are a powerful voice in our community. You've done so much good. You've blessed our lives and so many lives of people through your legislative work, through your clinical work. and and both of you in your life mission. So, Becky Edwards, thank you. This is Richard Osler signing up on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>